I first took my uh, very first statistics class when I was a junior in college. I did well, I got an A, um, but I didn't really understand statistics. I was good enough at math that I could manipulate the problems, but the concepts really just frankly went straight over my head. So then I went to uh, business school, and my first year of business school, I took my second class in statistics. This time I didn't do quite as well, I got a B plus, but the concepts started to come into focus. Then, because I minored in market research in addition to my major in marketing, I took what was, would be my third statistics class, and this time, light bulbs went off all over the place. Concepts came clear, I, I did well, I got an A, and I won't say that I fell in love with statistics, but I sure came to see the value in these ideas. In fact, I've insisted that both my daughters in college take a statistics class because I believe that a rudimentary knowledge of statistics is extremely important in the modern world. Understanding statistics helps be, us be more discerning when a politician throws out a poll, uh, numbers, or researchers quote a research study. For example, earlier this year, uh, I think in the summer, my uh, youngest daughter texted me an article that she'd read in the newspaper or maybe online uh, saying that uh, my morning Diet Coke was going to give me dementia. Now, I'm skeptical. Perhaps she's right. Maybe when I'm 85, I'll be able to hide my own Easter eggs, but I'm not quite so sure. So I looked up the study and found out that it was based on 81 people out of just about 3,000 mostly white adults in a single state, the state of Massachusetts. The study didn't control for the type of artificial sweeteners, and it couldn't separate other possible factors. Plus, if you know of anything at all about statistics, you know that correlation does not mean causation. Now, I don't want anybody to argue with me about my daily Diet Coke. I've tried coffee. I've tried hard. I hate coffee. I'm not going to drink it. So even if the research is correct, I'm going to take my chances, and in 25, 30 years, we're going to find out. But back to statistics for a moment. One of the core concepts in statistics is the power of sample size. The larger the sample size, the more significant, um, or at least the more certainty you have that the results are significant. Now, another mistake is that significance doesn't mean that it's meaningful, but that's for another day. But the question is, that really, sample size needs to be a certain size in order for us to have any confidence that the results tell us anything. And because it's expensive to collect results or interview people, statisticians have tried to figure out what's the smallest possible sample size you can have and still have results that are significant. And so the answer is 30. Now, it depends on the complexity of the study. That's actually a really small minimum. But you can't trust any study based on 10 college freshmen. You need at least 30, and even then, you probably need more. But it needs to be a minimum of 30. So why, when we're talking about parenting, do I give you this little lesson in statistics? Well, my job today is to tell you how to be great parents, except there's a problem. I do have a few ideas. Kathy and I have had a few things that have been helpful to us. There are a few things that we wish we'd done differently, um, so we've made some mistakes. So I just want to own up right now to tell you that I'm not an expert. Now remember that to have a statistically significant sample, you need at least 30 data points. So when it comes to parenting, how many data points do I have? Two. Two. Not 30, but two. So I don't want you to assume that I have all the answers. In fact, I would never say do exactly as we've done. We've made plenty of mistakes, and if we had a chance to do it over again, we'd do different things and make a different set of mistakes. Um, but just so you know, and also just so you know, a couple times in the last 20 years, we've sought professional advice, been to counselors to help us navigate specific parenting issues that we've faced. 
And also remember that no matter what you do, your kids may need counseling as well. Now, one of our daughters, unnamed, um, was upset one time with a specific decision that I had made. Uh, when I left her bedroom, she shouted out, you know, someday this is going to come up in therapy. <laughs> she was 12. <laughs> now, despite sample sizes, there's no shortage of parenting experts. Anybody with a laptop and a creative mind can write a parenting book. Um, some even have degrees in psychology or child development. But many are just overconfident parents who had compliant kids that lead them to think that they've got the parenting thing down. And many of these books, not all, but many of them are frankly bunk. I learned long ago not to judge parents by their kids. Children have freedom to make their own decisions. They should at the right age. And you just can't guarantee how they're going to turn out. I've also learned that it's dangerous to make a rule of our own experience. Something you did may have worked, but for someone else, it may not. There are different people with different kids than your kids. I once had lunch with a man who had three children, just about the ages of our two daughters. I think they were ranging at the time. His were ranging in age from 7 to 12. And at lunch, he proceeded to lecture me on the seven things that I had to do in order to make sure that my girls would turn out as though my children were like muffins put in the oven for 20 minutes at 350 degrees and they'll turn out. Now, with all of those disclaimers, should we just throw up our hands and say, you know, we don't know anything and despair? No, I don't think so. I think there are experts who know something, and I also believe that the Bible has some great advice about parenting. First, though, I want to go through a couple of preliminary concepts before we move on and talk about what the Bible has to say. And... First, I want to go through a concept that I believe is both consistent with the Bible as well as in recent years being verified by researchers who have talked and looked at successful parenting, parenting that produces children who have both self-confidence as well as self-control. The big debate for many years in parenting has been, is it better to have strict, demanding parents who set firm boundaries, spare the rod, spoil the child, or responsive, engaging parents who interact with their children with warmth and compassion. That's fathers do not exasperate your kids, the words of St. Paul. So which of these would you rather be? Now most of us lean one way or the other. So in our family, you can see that I'm on the left and Kathy's on the right. So which is right? Well, it's both. Firmness and warmth, as it turns out, are not opposites, but going together, they help children flourish. In fact, one without the other is poor parenting. It's a false choice. So here's the way the graph actually ought to look. Firmness without warmth, which is authoritarian parenting, eventually leads to rebellion, or it can. And warmth without firmness, indulgent parenting, eventually ends up with spoiled, entitled brats. So in the end, there aren't two ways to parent. There are actually four, and three of them are less than good. There is authoritarian parenting, there's absent parenting, indulgent parenting, and kind. And kind isn't the same as nice. Nice parenting settles for easy, warm feelings, but it fails to set high expectations. But kind parenting can be clear and firm as well as tender and affectionate. So the best parenting is up and to the right. The worst is absent parents, parents that are neither firm nor warm. So authoritarian parents may provide much, may not provide much affection, but they do provide structure. And indulgent parents may not provide much structure, but at least they provide an environment of acceptance and affirmation. Now, before we look at what I think is one of the most helpful passages in the Bible about parenting, let's talk for a moment about the goal of parenting. 
Here are some common options that you may see on a talk show on TV or, or find on Facebook or read in a supermarket magazine. And the first of these I mentioned last week, so I won't talk very long about it, and that is that the goal of raising kids is that they be happy. Now, we certainly don't want our kids to be unhappy, but the Bible doesn't suggest that happy children is the goal. And a related issue is that the goal of parenting isn't necessarily that our children like us. Now, of course, we hope in the end that they do like us, but successful parents are willing to endure a few moments when kids are mad at us along the way. If you can't stand to see your child unhappy, you probably are in the wrong business. The third mistake that many make, at least uh, is often uh, taught people, is that the Bible... Um, is that the goal is raising successful children. The Bible doesn't say that. So the goal isn't getting your kid into Harvard or getting them a D1 hockey scholarship at the University of Minnesota. That doesn't give you an automatic A in parenting. We shouldn't try to live our own unfulfilled dreams through our kids. We just can't do that. And finally, the last goal of parenting that I think is a mistake is the idea of control. Well-behaved kids are nice, but it can come at a high price. One of the consequences of all this confusion about goals is that in the modern world, some of the goals that people have set out for parents and that parents are trying to live out have resulted in a lot of kids who are little narcissists. Narcissism is on the rise. My dad used to say that we spend the first two years of our, child, our children's lives convincing them they're the center of the universe and the next 16 years trying to convince them they're not. But we've got parents today who spend the first 18 years of their children's lives telling them they're the center of the universe, and then we let the cold, cruel world prove to them that they're not. So what, what I suggest would be the appropriate goals of parenting. Let me suggest three quickly here. The first is character, or said another way, happiness, not happiness, but holiness. The second is faith, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll say more on that in a second. And then the third is independence. Our hope should be that our kids have roots and wings, that we prepare them to be ready to thrive in a world as mature, godly, and virtuous adults. I had a mom one time tell me that her uh, youngest daughter, who was, I think, around 21, 22 years old, had just made a decision without consulting her. And she was really distraught. She said, I've been fired from my job. And I thought, you know, no, that's not right. In fact, her daughter had made a good decision it was a sign of maturity. It was something her mother had actually prepared her well for. So we should be ready to let our kids become independent. It's the second goal, the goal of faith, that causes parents the most anxiety. For most of us who've experienced God's grace, who've embraced a relationship with Jesus Christ, have found um, joy in the present and hope for eternity, we want our kids to experience exactly the same thing. And if there were a formula for raising kids who would say yes to Jesus, we'd all sign up. But it's not that simple. In God's wisdom, he has given all of us freedom, a choice. And he, doesn't, he respects that choice. He doesn't compel any of us into the kingdom of God. The truth is, is that many children raised in Christian families end up embracing a relationship with Jesus, but not all. Our job is to create an environment where children can find a relationship with Jesus and say yes to him, but there are no guarantees. Now, I want us to look at a text that I believe provides some helpful guidance for parents on parenting. And you'll notice that I didn't use the word advice 
but I rather use the word guidance because I think advice might set up the expectation that I'm going to offer a roadmap or a formula for raising successful kids. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what I can do is, is help you maybe think about a way to create an environment that gives us a good chance of raising kids with character and faith who are ready to make their way in the world. The advice comes from an interesting place, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, many of you probably not, have not read Deuteronomy. I've got to tell you, it's one of the most tedious books in the Bible. The only one that's worse is Leviticus. Um, but it does have a few golden nuggets, and this is one of them. But the background here is that the nation of Israel had been uh, wandering in the wilderness um, for many years. They were just weeks from crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But before they go, Moses does a reset. He tries to help them understand the essentials of their identity as a people of God. So in chapter 5, the chapter before the one we're going to look at, he encourages them first to give their full loyalty to God in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 then reminds them in verses 7 to 21 of what God expects of them. And there he repeats the Ten Commandments, which had been given all the way back in Exodus, but he repeats them again. The people respond to this with the commitment to obey toward the end of the chapter, to which God responds with the promise to bless them if they do. So that's the background that comes into this advice that Moses gives them, this guidance. Now, let me just say one other thing. Don't tune me out if you don't have children. Just because you don't have children doesn't mean that you aren't around kids, doesn't mean that you don't have an influence in the lives of kids. You may be an aunt or an uncle or grandparents or neighbors, coaches, babysitters, or at City Church you may volunteer with City Kids or Velocity, helping kids from birth through 18 come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have an influence no matter if you are parents or not. But now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And if you'd like to follow along in one of the pew Bibles, it begins on page 258, page 258, although the words will also be on the screen. Here's how Moses begins. He says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you and your children and your children after may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Verse 6, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell them, we are slaves, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us into the land and give us the land he promised an oath to our ancestors. So let me offer six ideas um, that are explained in this chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. And the first is to set a good example. This comes from verses 1 and 2 where Moses writes, live by keeping all the decrees and commandments that I give you. One of the truths of parenting and being around kids in general is that children imitate us. They pick up our mannerisms. They often share our interests. They'll even pick up our opinions and values. We often think we teach our children by what we say, but in reality, we teach them far more by what we do. Children remember very little of what we say, but they'll remember almost all of what we do. 
When our girls were little one time, we took them to the Science Museum in St. Paul, and uh, there was some construction right around the Science Museum. This is when it was in the old location. And uh, as it turned out, Kathy had one idea about the way we should go, and I had another, and so we had a, a discussion. Um, <laughs> and that's when we heard Amy, um, time our, our oldest, say from the back seat, what does it mean to argue? And we were busted. So the example can be bad or it can be good, but we need to set an example for our children. A second idea is to cultivate a heart for God. This is from verse 6. These commands are to be on your heart. Kids are absolutely terrific at picking up posers. They know when somebody says one thing and means another. Earlier this summer, we looked at the time when David was chosen uh, by God to be the leader of the nation of Israel, and Samuel had some questions because David was really young, and God simply said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is consistent with what Jesus said when he said, it's what comes out of our hearts that results in actions. Actions reflect what's in our hearts. So we need to cultivate a heart for God ourselves and if we do that, our children will notice. Will notice. Now, I want to be careful about what I'm about to say, but I do think this is true. I believe that parents who have a deep love for God can make mistakes and things will still turn out okay. It's not always true. But kids seem to know when their parents' hearts are in the right place. A third idea is to creatively instruct our kids. This is from verse 7, first part of verse 7. Impress on them the commands on your children. So he's talking about the commands. He says, impress on them. And we have to teach our children the content of our faith. Read them the stories of the Bible. Make sure that they're consistently in church to hear lessons geared to their age and stage of life. Also, good books and movies and trips and other experiences. Now, all that said, it's hard to teach children in a linear fashion. You can't decide, okay, this year we're going to do a seminar on uh, how to be a good kid and how to be a good adult, you know, whatever it is. Children don't work that way. They often aren't ready to hear what we have to say or they forget. That's why the fourth idea is that we need to take advantage of teachable moments. This is the second half of verse 7 when it says, Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. What that means is just in the everyday experiences of life. That's why it's so important to take advantage of teachable moments, moments when a topic presents itself and children are all ears. Probably many, if not most, of the, the important conversations that we in our house have had with our kids have been unplanned. Uh, sometimes I write these things down, and one time when our uh, oldest daughter, Amy, was about four, almost five, she just asked us, she said, uh, um, God must have had a hard time taking care of everybody at the same time. And so we were able to have a conversation about God's love, his omnipresence, which means that God's everywhere, and his power. And then just as quickly, the conversation and subject changed. And here's an example of a teachable moment that I think parents need to take advantage of, and that is failure. Modern parents often do everything they can to protect their kids from failure. They'll do anything to help their children avoid anything unpleasant or disappointing. That's why some college administrators are calling children today, young adults, teacups, because they break anytime things don't go their way. Children need to learn about failure and disappointment. They need to learn that things don't always go their way. If they don't learn that from a coach or a teacher, 
they will be shocked when they take their first job and have a bad boss. Parents can't and shouldn't protect their children forever. One expert said, let your kid be devastated at six and not have their first devastation in college. Then she went on to talk about the lessons you can learn on the soccer field. Don't protect your kids. Let them go ahead and experience that. And don't protect them from all of the consequences of their poor moral decisions. My wife has a prayer that she's prayed for years for our girls, that they would learn big lessons from small mistakes. Her other prayer is that they get caught the first time they try anything. But we should not and cannot try to help them get off any time they make mistakes. Sometimes the consequence is more important than avoiding the pain. Now, that also means teaching our kids um, to stick things out. One writer recently in the New York Times said, we live in the golden age of bailing. Um, The moment we don't like something or something better comes along, we're out of there. If we teach them they can quit things anytime that they want, they won't learn to persevere and even learn that they can be a change agent in bad situations. They won't learn it because we're too busy catering to their every wish. Remember, they're kids. Young kids don't think logically, and the brains of adolescents are swimming in a cocktail of hormones that they can't really figure things out. They may sound like adults, but they're not really adults, and so we shouldn't always treat them that way. A fifth idea is to spend quality time. This is, again, the same words. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And while I've already read that verse, what this is saying is that the teachable moments come out of the time that we spend with our kids, meaningful time. And there's two dimensions of quality time. One is quantity, and the other is focused attention. So when we're with our kids, put away our phones, turn off the TV, um, let them know that we're right there with them. Again, I have not want to hold myself up as a paragon of virtue, but a couple of things that have worked in our family, been helpful to us, is one is when our girls were in elementary school, I took one of them to breakfast each week, so we kind of traded off every other week. Uh, there was a little place called Patisserie Margo not far from the, the school where our kids went to. It doesn't, it's not there anymore, but we used to go there and have a pano chocolate and a, a little glass of orange juice and talk for 20 minutes and then take them to school. Or when they were 12, we told our daughters that we would take them anywhere in the 48 United States they wanted to go for a week. It was their trip with their dad. And so our oldest daughter picked taking a whitewater rafting trip down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. That was a little more expensive than I anticipated. Should have put more boundaries around that one, but it was a great trip. And our, our youngest daughter loved to ski, and so uh, we went to Big Sky where some friends of ours graciously let us use their condo, and we skied for a week. Those were great trips, memorable trips that the girls still talk about. Quality time means listening to your children, listening to understanding who God has uniquely created them to be. Our oldest daughter, Amy, was born in Switzerland, and um, our pediatrician, Amy, there were a few little things. Amy was in the hospital, I think, for five or six days after her birth, and so took her home a little later than most parents do. And when time came to take her home from the hospital, uh, we met with her pediatrician, a man named Dr. Burley. And he, uh, he first of all informed us that we had a healthy baby girl and that everything was looking good. And then he said to Kathy, he said, now, is your mother coming from the United States to, to help you out? And Kathy said, yeah, she's coming next week. And he said, do you have friends with babies who uh, may have advice for you? She said, yes, I, I do. And then he said, uh, and you're an American. You probably have read a book or two about uh, raising kids. And she said, yes. And he, and he said, good. And then he paused and he said, madam, 
you need to understand. He said, I want to make a suggestion. Don't listen to any of them. Listen to your child. And then he explained that advice from mothers and mothers-in-law, from friends and books by experts was fine, but their child was not our child. Our baby was unique, and he said, above all, listen to who she is. Discern what's best for her, not what's best for someone else's child. Final piece of advice from Deuteronomy chapter 6 is to tell meaningful stories. This is from the last verses I read from the end of the chapter, verses 20 to 23. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulation, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I think sometimes we put too much weight on propositional truth, facts and figures and concepts and principles. Um, Those are important, but we need to tell our children stories. Children love stories. We need to tell them lots of stories. And Moses is particularly emphasizing what will later be recorded in what we have now in the Bible, stories about the things that God has done in human history. That's why uh, one of the things that Kathy and I do whenever a child is born here at City Church is we give the parents a read-aloud Bible story book. If you have more kids, you get second and third and fourth editions of that, so you can... I don't know if you want to have more kids just to get more books, but we try to provide those because those are great. They're, it's a great series um, with stories that are geared for young children. Another uh, resource that came out after our kids were pretty much grown is the Jesus Storybook Bible. There are lots of different books that tell the stories in ways that children can understand them. But we should also tell children our own story with God. Tell them how it was that we came to faith. Tell them about the important milestones and spiritual markers in our lives, the things that God has done for us. They will remember these stories, and they will subtly shape how they see God. When our daughter Amy was four, she watched a movie about Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the first African-American student to integrate the New Orleans public schools, and an exemplary story about how she lived that out. And it led to a conversation at the time about race, about loving others, and a few months later, Kathy and Amy were in the car, and there was a CD with children's songs, and one of the songs was called Love Your Neighbor, or Love Your Enemy, excuse me. And when the song ended, Amy just said to Mom, that's what Ruby Bridges did, and that's right. The question many parents ask is, have I been successful? And I think that's the wrong question. The question we need to ask ourselves is, have I been faithful? Often, faithful parents do the best they can, and often it works out. But even with it doesn't, as heartbreaking as it can be, they can know that they've done all that they can. And one other thing. I think I've quoted this before. Martin Luther says that that marriage is the school for character. Well, if that's true, and I think it is, parenting is the graduate school. We often think of the effect that our parenting will have on our kids and forget that the effect that parenting has on us is also important. For me, parenting has made me more humble, more sacrificial, more prayerful, more dependent upon God. So I'm grateful for what parenting has done to me. And while you're parenting, remember to enjoy the experience and also give yourself grace. When Amy, our oldest, went away to college, Kathy said to her, honey, she said, we've never done this before. And we're going to make some mistakes. And we have. And then she said, and so will you. And she has. But we're going to do the best we can. So let's give each other some grace. Let's pray. Father, bless every parent here today. 
Bless every aunt and uncle, grandparent, neighbor, coach, and Sunday school teacher, anyone who comes in regular contact with children, the children you so dearly love. May we be good stewards of the children that you've entrusted to us and give us the wisdom, strength, and understanding we need to be the best parents for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.